Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, October the 6th, 2023. Another Friday, another That Was The Week with my old friend Keith Tier, the tech sage of Palo Alto. Uh, <laughs> another terrible AI-generated image. I don't know why you keep on doing it, Keith. Uh, and another week where AI dominates. You're saying that the story of the week and the story of the year, perhaps of the decade, is AI. What happened this week, Keith, to make it such a big AI week? Well, I call it AI or bust because there's really two competing narratives this week. The, the one is that venture capital is still heavily on a downward trend at all stages. And the other is that AI companies have been funded at a rapid rate at, at high valuations. And what happened this week is a, a lot of different things happened. The first thing, and probably most significant, is that ChatGPT disclosed its new version it's still part of ChatGPT4, but it's now what's called multimodal, which means that it can deal with images. For example, you can sketch the drawing of a website, uh, upload. Did you the... make this terrible image from it? I did not. I used uh, Midjourney for that, which is, uh, you know. For I, people I watching, I think, uh, Keith, there will, there will never be, uh, no one will be confusing this with Vermeer or Rembrandt. Well, you see that sun in the distance, Andrew. Yeah. That is the AI, and the bust is in the <laughs> foreground. <laughs> so it's like head for the promised land. Um, uh, when I think of busts, I think of other kinds, but uh, that's another story. So, uh, so, so back to the big story. The art's no good, but uh, the tech is impressive. Yeah, so ChatGPT basically has stepped it up yet again. Um, I said last week, there's lots of rumors that they are they already have what they consider to be artificial general intelligence version of their of their software. Um, they're rapidly iterating. They're including now voice. You can speak to it on the iPhone and it will speak back to you instead of typing. Uh, you can you can upload images from your iPhone camera that it can interpret. And for example, it can write code. If you wanted a keen on website, you do a little sketch of all the sections, it will write the code to create that website for you with what's called CSS, which is the design language of web. And and so it, it, it's just becoming... Um, it's happening fast. That's the astonishing thing. It's happening super fast. And, and, and it means it's going to be an assistant for almost anything. Um, my son, my son Luke, was doing homework on waves of immigration into the U.S. this week, focusing on the different experiences between uh, uh, Italian, um, Irish, uh, Asian, and Central American immigrants over different periods of time, and asking lots of questions to compare the experiences and difficulty levels of all those different things. Is it worrying your oldest son? He just graduated from Syracuse. He has a, a software job in the Valley. You know, he's not using it yet because most companies have not yet understood how powerful it is. It's almost like cheating if you're an engineer to use it. Um, well, it won't make him redundant, though. I mean, that's the big, the big question is, is it going to empower guys like your son 
who are just starting out as software engineers, or is it going to make them redundant? Yeah, I think that relates to the extent to which they embrace it. If they embrace it, it's going to massively upgrade their capabilities and get, make them available for much harder jobs. Um, you've got to be careful there because they have, they have to learn through mistakes like we all do. So you, you don't want to offload everything. But I, what I've found as I use it doing SQL programming is I learn from it as, as it as I give it problems and one has to be super specific on what the problem is. So if you're not specific, you can't get the answer. So that, that requires knowledge and intelligence even to ask the questions. But if you ask the right questions and it, and it helps you, you learn from how it helps and it just accelerates your education in any domain. Very, very, very fast. So you, you say in the newsletter that you've been using it at signal rank for programming for coding, uh, what, it's reduced. Uh, you reduced your code by ninety percent while increasing how good the results are. Does it make code kind of redundant? No, it, it, it writes code, but my code, because I'm, I describe myself as a B plus programmer in SQL. My code tends to be um, very linear and lengthy. You know, first do A, then do B, then do C then do D. Uh, and in my case, I'm looking at annualized cohorts of venture funded companies. So I have to do the code for each year. What it can could do is create loops um, that could do everything in a single set of code that was shorter than my code and covered all the years and all the variations in a, in a single piece of code. So it shrunk the code and made the code more resilient. Uh, while still, you know, had, having me setting the goals and the purpose of the code and checking whether it works. So it, it, it's truly amazing, honestly. It's a big deal. It's a big historical deal. I know, Keith, you like to, with your Marxist background, you like to historicize all this. You're intrigued by the idea of the significance of AI versus the mobile revolution, and you uh, you cite in this week's newsletter a piece by Rex Woodbury, the mobile revolution versus the AI revolution. Is it a bigger deal, according to Rex Woodbury, than, than, than the mobile, or equivalent at least? It, it is, because he, he, he makes the correct point that the mobile revolution is really the end of the internet revolution, um, uh, at least... So when's that begin? 2012, 2013? Well, really 2007. And you could even go further back to the BlackBerry, to be honest, in the Palm, uh, if you wanted to. So uh, it, it's been a long time. Uh, I always am suspicious when somebody calls the end of a phase, because I still think there's probably... So is he presenting mobile in, in historical terms as how we think of Web 2, that they're the same thing? Web 2... Uh, yes, but also the mobile distribution of Web two. To you know, before mobile, we had maybe a billion PC or Mac users. Now we have over four billion smartphone users. So just the sheer scale of the distribution means the economics of being successful are huge and fast. The other thing with mobile is distributing software became as simple as putting it in an app store. So you could directly address 4 billion people just by shipping something. That was never true before. 
So it, uh, you know, the, the scale of that. You said in the introduction, it's beginning to uh, impact on valuations. Uh, I want to talk about the anthropic valuation that you, you talk about. But I always used to say that to you. I said, oh, isn't AI changing everything? And when you were so gloomy about valuations broadly and investment, what's changed on that from? Why are you slightly more optimistic now? Well, I was never really gloomy about AI. It's just the AI. But you always used to say, well, it's not that important a piece. Is it becoming larger, more important, more central in the investment world? I don't remember myself saying that, but I believe you. Maybe I did. Um, but it, it isn't because it's becoming more central just because it's where innovation is happening in a, in a profound way that will impact human beings. You know, there's an interesting, you talked about Marxism, there's an interesting discussion within uh, social science about the extent to which technology is the catalyst for human progress. And, and if you think about almost, almost all human progress requires tools that make it possible to do things faster and better than before. Um, but the tools don't do it all by themselves. Humans have right. to. Right. Simon Johnson, uh, we, we talked about him. He was on Power and Progress. He talks about how sometimes it can also compound inequality. So, but in that sense, technology is human. It's created by humans, used by humans to improve the life of humans. Um, the economic layer, where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, I think that's a separate conversation which is an important conversation, but it's it's not the same conversation. Um, so I, I'm a massive believer that there are technical catalysts to human change. And those technical catalysts are themselves human. They're, they're not, they didn't come from... Yeah, I mean, it depends how you... I mean, it's, it's a semantic issue. We talked about anthropic. Um, to what extent are these remarkable valuations of wannabe AI players like Anthropic. I mean, they are, I guess, real players, but not as much as open AI. How is that affecting the broader market? Massively. Um, I mean, if you think about the, the economic world of tech, there are, there, are, there are fundings, there are mergers and acquisitions, and there are IPOs. Um, and, and then there are product initiatives from companies at all stages. And the, the pace of, of change in, across all of those is massive. Anthropic is uh, required by Google and others. Uh, Amazon invested in them as well as, as a protection against becoming irrelevant. Uh, and OpenAI is so good that it does threaten the irrelevance of other players. It, it, it really could own a very large part of the pie that AI will create, probably not the enterprise part. I think there's a lot of room for vertical applications in the enterprise, but it will play a role in the enterprise. What about Google? Google did a few things this week. Firstly, it launched uh, Bard within Google. It had a big conference where it created the new iPhone, the new uh, Google phone came out, the Pixel which also includes Google Assistant that has AI within it, BARD. Um, and they also announced the integration into Google workspaces of AI. So in like 
spreadsheets and Word documents and email and stuff. So Google is deploying stuff. I suspect, just from a quality point of view, a bit like Bing, it isn't as good as OpenAI. So you, you tend to not want to use it because you know there's something better. So why would you use something not as good? Are there going to be losers there? I mean, can you be second in this market? Can you be an anthropic and still win? Yet to be proven. I don't know. Hard to imagine, given the winner-take-all history of, of tech, and it's becoming an increasingly yeah. a winner-take-all um, economy. I, you know, I think it's going to be closer to the portal era when you had you had Yahoo, Google, Excite, Infoseek. I think there will be different players. Yeah, but all those, the InfoSeeks and the Yahoo's got destroyed eventually by Google because they came along with better technology. Eventually, that's true. That's exactly what happened. And, and that could well happen. OpenAI is kind of embedded with Microsoft, which makes... which In I, and out of bed. Is, is it also, is there any potential for a massive blow up on that front? Well, I, I, think, I think it's um, not a relationship that has shared... Uh, incentives. So I, I'd be surprised if that ended well. Uh, but I think in this case, OpenAI is strong enough to come out of that okay, which is not normal with Microsoft. Well, if OpenAI dominates the AI economy, maybe they'll buy Microsoft rather than the other way around. That that would require lots of ifs and buts to happen. So I'm, uh, That's uh, science fiction. You mentioned about technology making the world a better place. You and I have talked about that a lot. Um, you have an interesting piece from uh, Azim Azar. We both know him quite well. The Golders Green-based technologist from North London. He's been on my show several times. I know you know him. How does he believe that AI can fight inequality? One of the great questions. I mean, we talked about your son. If your son loses his job from AI, God knows what he's going to do. It'll only compound inequality. Yeah, so he, he was interviewing um, um, the founder of one of the big AI companies. I'm just blanking on his name, sorry. Um, uh, uh, and uh, 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 Imad Mosti. And uh, so Stability AI, which is Imad's company, is another player, especially in the, in the visual space, and, and is open source. So what Azim is arguing is that uh, open source, if you roll the clock forward five years or so, is going to be responsible for lots of AI projects that are not driven by OpenAI or any of the major players. And this is a, a fairly popular theme. Azim isn't the only... Well, we've heard it before. We heard it in Web 2. We heard it with Web 1, and it never worked out before. So why should we hope it will work out this time? I it did work out with operating systems. So if most of the internet runs on Linux, which is open source. Um, but that didn't create any more equality. Well, it, it, in a way it did because, a, a, you know, a 12-year-old kid that's semi-competent can spin up a, an entire web infrastructure in their bedroom for nothing because Linux is free. All they need to have is a computer. And, and, and so... It does really democratize. It really does. Well, yes and no. But then that 12-year-old kid, the Mark Zuckerberg, eventually comes along and creates a walled garden winner-take-all company. 
Well, that's why Stability AI is interesting because it's an open source company. By the way, Facebook is trying to play that role as well. It open sourced some of its Llama code this week uh, again. Um, and it, it, you know, uh, that in the Facebook case, one doubts the sincerity. In Stability AI's case, I think it is actually sincere. And, um, you know, there is, there is a fighting chance that the models will shrink down to be able to run on websites and mobile phones. And the open source cores will dominate that world. I'm not holding my breath, I have to admit. I mean, uh, OpenAI is anything but open. That's correct, which is why you need open source code uh, so that other people who don't want to pay OpenAI have a, have a shot. But if OpenAI is the leader, what's the value of open source code? If, if OpenAI has the most valuable, the best code? Well, developers rely on, on open source code to do things even better still. For example, OpenAI itself has a lot of open source code inside it. And it would have been really hard for OpenAI to exist without that open source code, Tra models, for example. So I think it's... Um, I think it's important to understand the role of open source in developer. But it's the old story. We heard the same stories about, say, when the first iPhone came out, that it was all built on public knowledge, public research, public IP, and yet Apple never gave anything back. So, so why should anything be different? Why will OpenAI aren't going to give anything back to the open source community? Apple actually does, Andrew. Um, they all do. So this is a bit geeky, but deep inside all Apple code is a Linux, uh, a Unix uh, distribution called BSD, Berkeley Standard Unix. And um, the, the the version Apple uses is called Darwin. And, and so whenever Apple upgrades the operating system, they contribute everything that is back-end into the Darwin code set so that other developers can build different things on it. So it would be, it would be possible to download Darwin and build your own Mac OS. Yeah, I understand. But with the new iPhone 15, for example, none of those sales, I mean, Apple is, what, a $3 trillion company. None of those sales goes back into the public space. Yeah, but I think the, mis the mistake or the, 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 um, the, the kind of... Uh, element that you're glossing over there is open source isn't a competitor to big companies o open source is just a methodology for building code and they they kind of coexist even the big companies use a lot of open source uh, and if, if you and me wanted to start coding something large complex we would definitely start with some open source software stack um, and, and, and that would save us years and years and years of development, 10 years maybe. So the, it, it's like that old phrase, we sit on the shoulders of giants. The, the, the open source stack of, of code is the legacy of collaborative developers over, over many, many decades putting stuff out there for free use. Well, speaking of Apple and the iPhone, I know you, Keith, always buy the iPhone. You say I don't because I'm Jewish, which may be true. Um, uh, there's a very good review of the iPhone 15 Pro Max camera. 
you've said to me, and I'm thinking of buying it in spite of my religion. Um, is it a major upgrade? Is the what? 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 what you, you're both an owner, and you read this stuff. Is this a big deal? The the camera on the iPhone 15 Pro Max. Yeah, it, it's only that model that is the breakthrough. So that's the one to get if I buy one. The if, Pro Max. If, if you want a better camera, that's the only one to buy. If you if you if you have anything from I'd say a 12 to a 14, and you don't care about the good camera, there's probably not a strong reason to upgrade. Um, but it uh, the, the camera I took it to Mexico with me last week and um, to all kinds of events and used it for both video and and images, and and it's just fantastic. It works in low light and creates very good images. The sound is fantastic as well. Um, it, it, it's, 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 a, it's a studio in your pocket, basically. Uh, and I, 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 you can't knock it. The review that I publish a, a snippet of is, is a massive review. Even my snippet's quite big. And um, it's written by the founder of Halide. And Halide is one of the best uh, uh, camera-using apps on the iPhone. And um, he, he goes through every detail of why it's awesome. And I, I recommend anyone thinking of buying one, just read that review. And you're probably going to write a check for close to $1,500 at the end if you can afford it. Well, this was supposed to be the week of AI or bust software, but we mentioned hardware, we mentioned the iPhone 15. Another interesting piece, I was on a, a Ray-Ban new smart glasses that will be able to translate text are we on the brink of a an a hardware ai revolution too keith well the ray the ray-ban glasses um and one, one's always skeptical of facebook for all kinds of reasons but the ray-ban glasses seem to be closer to a real world application than anything else they're doing the the quest 3 was also announced at their event this week and the Quest 3 has flipped from being an immersive VR headset to be closer to Apple's idea of a look-through headset where the room you're in becomes part of the experience you see uh, and it, it, you're no longer separated from the room you're in. So I think the trend is now set in that virtual reality is not the path, but augmented reality is. And the Ray-Ban glasses are a lightweight $300 augmented reality experience. Uh, you can get prescription lenses. You can get lenses that uh, darken in the sunlight. Um, you see an overlay on the real world that's mainly text bubbles for metadata. So one of the examples they use is standing in front of a historical monument and seeing the history of the monument come up. Um, in your eyes um, uh, and uh, it also has a camera so you can record events um, and, and they get saved to the cloud well, well, what a Ray-Ban if you put the glasses on what would they tell you if you're watching Manchester United they tell you to look away I think right now wouldn't they yeah. you're still showing the graphic by the way well we're moving on another hardware Breakthrough, uh, startup of the week, EV boat startup Arc, 
TechCrunch, brilliant, uh, brilliantly original headline, wades into water sports with 70 million in, fre in fresh funding. A lot of water metaphor there. Uh, so so what, why is this the startup of the week? What are they trying to do, uh, Ark? So be before I answer, I have to tell you, we're still seeing the iPhone 15 on the mainstream. I'm not. I think you have a problem with your computer. Oh, well, I'm pleased about that. I hope the recording shows yours and not mine. So the Arc is um, an electric vehicle company, but it doesn't do cars. It does boats, uh, speedboats. They cost uh, a lot of money, $300,000. Yeah, very much of a Silicon Valley play here, I'm guessing. Yeah, and, and, and even then, a partial, because I'm not sure tech bros all like speedboats, so I have anywhere to... Well, a lot of them do. Where, where are they going to take them in the valley? That's the, I mean, you can't go on reservoirs and the ocean doesn't seem appropriate. So you've got to find somewhere, maybe Tahoe. Um, but anyway. They, they take them to Miami with them when they leave, when they're all. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So uh, I made it start up of the week because firstly, it raised a lot of money. And, you know, hardware companies like that with a lot of capital expenditure and research and development are hard to fund at any time. They're even harder to fund right now. But this company's leadership managed to raise a significant amount of money to take it to the next level. So it probably means that product's going to survive and prosper. And well done to them. It sounds like, to extend the uh, the liquid metaphors, it sounds a bit frothy to me. Although I'm not sure you're suggesting there isn't much. This is the kind of funding you'd expect during a boom rather than a bust. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I was pleased for them and not, you know, a little surprised that they pulled it off. It must mean that they've got enough sales to justify the effort. Are you going to buy a, one of their car, one of their boats, Keith? I'm afraid I'm not. I'm not. I'm not water friendly. My my swimming capability is about equal to a ten year old that just learned to swim. Well, you just you grew up in Scarborough by the sea. Did you not go in the sea there? It's filthy. Well, that's no excuse. Pretty You're filthy, aren't you? <laughs> Only in the good sense of the word. Well, X of the week. We're no longer using the T word. Uh, interesting. Uh, and it's a nice coherence to the, the show and the newsletter this week. It's all about AI uh, and the, the X of the week. It do, it's from somebody called Wes Gurney. Do language models have an internal world model, a sense of time at multiple spatio-temporal scales. In other words, the languages make sense. Uh, your ex of the week triggered a debate with the great Gary Marcus, who doesn't think. Uh, so tell us about the ex of the week and what the issues are, Keith. So um, Wes Gurney, uh, 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 if, you if one clicks through on that, you're going to see a paper, a, a depth paper, that shows that large language models can have an awareness of the geography of the Earth and time. And what does that mean, though? Well, it, it means they can have a sense of the physical world. That includes, from just the language. I don't understand. Well, just from the it's language. Not, it's not language. It's, it's physical. Um, it's really about uh, the, 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 the geography and um, terrain and... Uh, putting data in time and place in the right place, um, knowing that, it, that, that there's a correlation between 
a place, a time, and some data. That's so super. The, the data is kind of alive. Yeah. So it basically has to have a world, a view of the world like we have in our heads. Like we we know right now, it's nighttime in Japan, and we know that Japan is this island off the coast of China, a set of islands. Yeah, but we only know that. We don't know that <laughs> intrinsically. A, a six-month-old child doesn't know that. We only know no, it because we learned it. Yeah, and he's making the point that large language models are learning it too. So they're going to be much better at mapping content to reality than, than they have ever been. Is this back to the old debate about whether these la whether AI can, quote-unquote, think for itself? Because I know Gary yeah. Marcus, who you also cite here, um, is a skeptic on that. He's one of the world's leading authorities on AI. You did a debate with him recently. Yeah, so he, he reacted to this paper in the negative. He showed lots and lots of examples that large language models are, don't understand space and time yet. Um, but he did what he always does, which is he creates this image of the perfect AI, and then he criticizes the current status as not being that. So in a sense, he's always right, right? Gary Marcus is always right. But, but in a sense, he's always wrong. But he's always wrong because he's not embracing the positive and figuring out how to make it better. He's just pointing the finger at that it isn't perfect. So it gets irritating a little bit. And I don't think he realizes how irritating it is. He really needs to either develop something on a different path or make suggestions to make this path better. I suspect he's inclined to the first, not the second. But being a constant finger pointer, I don't think it really does him any favors, even, even though he's right, because... Well, he has a very valuable brand now as not just a skeptic of AI, but an educator. It's one thing to trash AI. It's another to be critical being an AI expert and being articulate and quite a character. So it might be a hard thing for him to relinquish. Yeah. He also makes the point that there's nothing very new about this. Uh, I still don't really understand. I, I, uh, well, it, it, it isn't I, about... I, mean, what, what? I, I don't understand. You, you know, maybe maybe it's me, maybe it's you. What exactly is he saying here? Um, so let's read one quote, and I think you'll get it. Gurney and Tegmark seem impressed with the results. The fact uh, that geography can be weakly but imperfectly inferred from language corpus is actually already well known. So basically, large language models read language. And, and so if it, if it reads Shakespeare, it can probably tell you about Shakespeare. But it wouldn't correlate Shakespeare to London. Um, and so what he's saying is that large language models can correlate their learning to uh, continents and even specifically to cities. And so content can be associated with places, not just with the country. But how? I mean, unless that language involved, I mean, well, thinking Shakespeare, for example, Shakespeare's lot. London could have been a fiction. Well, there's, lot, there's lots of signals. It, it, you would, you know, if you think about everything that's ever been written about Shakespeare, there's enough signals to be quite specific about about the, the the historical context of Shakespeare. So I think it's all about reading the signals, 
with a view to creating um, a real-time world map that starts at year zero and, and comes up to date and being able to understand how to correlate data to both time and space. That's really what it is. I still don't understand. Finally, Keith, and maybe it's me being stupid, what would um, Shakespeare say about the iPhone 15 Pro Max? Would he say buy it or not buy it? I think he'd say, "Be gad, get one." 